Job chapter 19, verse 23. Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last my Redeemer will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. These are our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. The first sermon I ever heard a woman preach was in Divinity School, and it was me. Because <laughs> in my homiletics class, we delivered two sermons for that class, and in both cases, we were given the scripture, based our sermons upon, by literally pulling a paper with a passage printed on it out of a hat. I've never been very lucky. <laughs> my first sermon was on Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. I'll help you. It's the near sacrifice of Isaac. <laughs> really? <laughs> In my sermon, I've spent several hours, too many, with that passage. I ended up arguing that while Isaac lived, that's why it's called the near sacrifice, his father doesn't actually kill him, he just intends to. So while he lived, his relationship with his father ends that day in the scripture. There is no further recorded interaction between Abraham and Isaac, nor between Abraham and Sarah. I went on to compare Abraham with many ministers who are willing to sacrifice relationship with their children for what they believe to be the calling of God. I even quoted one of my PK friends who filled out the section on the Sunday envelope noting that she would like the minister to visit. <laughs> the sermon was a pretty scathing rebuke. My professor's only critique was that I let God alone. I let God off the hook completely. I ignored what the passage said about God, who after all in this text is the one who demands of Abraham that he take his son to the mountain with the fire and the knife and the intention to kill him. There's something about a challenge, isn't there? The next year I was invited to preach in chapel. No passages were provided. I didn't have to pull anything out of a hat. I willingly and intentionally selected Genesis chapter 22 for another go. This time I took God to task. Well, really I took bad theology to task. I believe in a God of love. A God of love. 
theological ideas and sacred stories up to the light of love, and then, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I see where the love shines through. I know that's what you do too. And we have to do it, because the Bible is full of bad theology. It's also full of good theology. It's the sorting, a sheep and goat, sweet and chaff, if you will. That's a biblical reference. <laughs> In my second sermon on the topic of Abraham and Isaac, I argued that God is a God of love and would not demand a sacrifice, even a sacrifice that God intended to stop, of a child. I argued, much as I did two Sundays ago, that humans were involved in the writing and recording of the Bible. That we need to take the sacred stories seriously, but not literally. And that the God presented in the story of Abraham's near slaughter of his son, the God who in the story demands this sacrifice, is not God at all, but rather one of the writers, one of the storytellers' ways of making sense of God in the world. Before I knew the words bad theology, I was already asking questions in Sunday school that got me sent to my father's office. I was already mad as hell at the God I was being presented with, a God who, like in the story of Abraham and Isaac, had no problem causing suffering for a teaching moment, for a profound testimony, for any number of inane reasons. Chief among them being God's will. After my mother died, well-meaning church members lined up to offer me bad theology. They said things like, God needed my mother in heaven. God was teaching us all such a valuable lesson with this tragedy. We just couldn't see it yet. Imagine what God would do with our lives now. Consider the testimony I would share when I was a grown-up. Miserable comforters in me. In today's lesson from Job that Chris read so beautifully, we heard familiar words. So familiar that some of you have likely been singing them in your head even before Tandy's beautiful solo. I know that my redeemer lives. If you listen to the entire Handel's Messiah, this is the solo that comes after the Hallelujah Chorus. The music soars, proclaiming hope in the face of everything that would deny it. Handel combines Job's cry, I know that my Redeemer lives, with 1 Corinthians 15-20, making it clear that for Handel, like so many Christians who hear the cry of Job from the depths of despair, who hear it as a reference to Jesus, I know that my Redeemer lives. While I love Handel, it behooves me to point out that Job's hope for a Redeemer is a hope in a kinsman, a close relative who will take up his charges against his friends and against God, even once Job is dead. 
This is the same word, the same idea that we see in the story of Ruth and Boaz, whereas Boaz acts as Ruth's redeemer through his kinship relationship with Naomi. This is referenced throughout the First Testament. The kinsman redeems, takes up the cause of the now widowed sister-in-law or daughter-in-law. Job's hope is not for a redeemer who comes in thousands of years, but rather for a relative who comes forth now in his defense to keep the work of justice going. What justice does Job demand? Job wants his friend's bad theology to be proven wrong. And Job wants God to declare that Job is correct, that Job has done nothing to deserve his suffering. The majority of the book is presented in poetry, as I showed you in the time for children, beautiful poetry full of horrible theological ideas, where friend after friend takes turn telling Job why he deserves his misfortune. Because he sinned, or his ancestors have sinned, or somebody did something wrong sometime, and God is now providing punishment and retribution that is deserved. So Job needs to repent, and he won't do it. Job protests his innocence in turn after turn, a friend after friend, miserable comforters all. He shouts to his friends and to God that he's done nothing to deserve his suffering. Job and his friends all share the same theology, though. It's a theology of a transactional God. This is all quid pro quo. They believe that God punishes evil and rewards good. This is their theology. The friends are far more concerned with preserving this theology than with their friends' suffering. And Job, with this understanding of God, just can't understand what's happening and refuses his friend's explanations because Job knows he's innocent. When the friends finally fall silent, God does in fact show up, but it is far from the satisfaction Job desires. Instead of the apology that Job is expecting, God goes on and on at length about wind and water and snow, and ice, and ravens, and lions, and war horses, and ostriches. God never speaks directly to the question of reward and punishment. Instead, God challenges Job to gird up your loins like a warrior. I'll question you, and you will reply. God bombards Job with queries that reveal the vast work of God in the universe suggesting directly that Job knows very little about what's going on. This has led many interpreters to conclude that these grand speeches are designed to shut Job up. How dare he, how dare we, question any action of the glorious Creator? In effect, they agree with Job when he responds to this flurry of questions with, Look, I'm trivial. What shall I answer you? I lay my head on my mouth. I have spoken once, but I will not 
no further. God asks Job to reply, but Job refuses. Job shuts up. But that was not God's stated intent. God began with, I will question you and you will reply. So what is Job and what are we meant to take from this huge catalog of divine creation and care for the cosmos? It cannot be that we shouldn't question God. God openly invites Job to do this questioning, invites Job into dialogue. It cannot mean that we're meant to learn that the friends of Job are correct in their theology. They're arguing that God is a God of reward and punishment. The friends argue that Job deserves the punishment, and Job argues that God has so much to answer for because he doesn't deserve the punishment. God's speech in the whirlwind doesn't address any of this directly. It's full of God's care for the weather and the earth's wild creatures. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to suggest that God is saying, I'm a God of creation and care, not of punishment and suffering, deserved or otherwise. It's helpful that after the whirlwind, God does speak directly to Job's friends. You'll remember. I'm going to say it again to make sure we've all got it. Their theology is bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. I wish this theology were dead by now, but it's not. That's their theology. This is their belief, and they abuse Job with this endlessly. They don't care that Job's children are dead, that he has lost literally everything and is now living in an ash heap. They don't care. They use their theology for cruelty. Another behavior that's alive and well. God speaks to the friends directly. Chapter 42. The Lord said to Elphaz, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right. I'm not ready to hang about me. You heard me. <laughs> the whirlwind doesn't give us what we want, but this is helpful right here. Chapter 42, the Lord said to Elphaz, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. I am not a God of reward and punishment. Not who I am. Job has been shaking his fist at God and his friends for chapter after chapter. He's not patient. I have no idea where he got the patience of Job with the stuff. God and injustice of torturing him without cause. Some people will consider Job's rage over the top. But those of us who have had bad theology added to our suffering, we add our voices to Job's. And that makes me wonder, could it be that we are the kinsmen redeemers? That all of us who over the centuries have stood up for good theology for the God of love, we are the hosts Job called forth from the moments of despair. So then arguably Jesus is the Redeemer, one of them, 
Jesus takes on bad theology again and again and again. Just one example, you've heard it said. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer for the God of love. So are we. Job needs us to do this work. I know that my Redeemer lives. I wonder if this day we can affirm that we are the Redeemers in which Job places his hope. We are the ones to take up the work of countering bad theology of demanding justice, of refuting every friend who blames the tragedies of life on God's will. God's desire to keep out the God's punishment. We are the redeemers. And after us, there will be other redeemers. And this work to preserve and defend the God of love and demand justice, it will continue. Just as it has after Job and after whoever wrote the book of Job. It will continue long into the future. In just a moment, we will share in a sacred meal. A meal that is meant for everyone. There is nothing you did that caused any suffering you might be enduring. You, exactly as you are, are precious in God's sight. You are loved and adored. We'll go outside to either side of the church house. We'll find bread. You'll find wine or water, and you are all welcome to take it and eat it. For on the night that Jesus shared this sacred meal with his friends, he took bread, and he blessed it and broke it. And he shared it with everyone gathered and said, take this and eat it. I'm sharing myself with you. And in the same way, he took a cup, and he blessed it. 